some of the guests that we have on this show, we book out so far in advance, in part because of scheduling and, and interfacing my schedule with the guests, and there's always a lot going on. And yet, in this particular episode, I could not have planned this better. Um, our guest today, not only is she an absolute genius creator, successful in so many different genre as a writer, but she's also incredibly um, tuned in, well-spoken, connected to so much of the tension that are, is happening in the United States right now and actually in, and around the world. Um, this best-selling, award-winning pop culture powerhouse, Roxanne Gay's writing appears in the Best American Mystery Stories for 2014, the Best American Short Stories in 2012, the Best Sex Writing in 2012, A Public Space, McSweeney's Tin House, Oxford American, American Short Fiction, Virginia Quarterly Review, and so many others. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, the author of books Ayiti, An Untamed State, the New York Times bestselling Bad Feminist, the national bestseller Difficult Women, and Hunger, her also New York Times bestselling memoir. Not to mention, she's also the author of The World of Wakanda for Marvel Comics. Several books forthcoming, also working on television and film, which we get to hear a little bit about those things. My guest, of course, is the inimitable Roxanne Gay, and we are going deep in this episode. I want to tell you a couple things we cover. Um, we start off with her life arc, early, early career, her first break, and she reveals something that I think is so insightful about early success in any career creator's journey, something that is often understood by the folks who have tread through these waters and often misunderstood or misinterpreted for uh, folks who have yet to reach that. And it is just, it's pure gold. We talk about her creative process. Let's face it, she is an absolute genius writer. We get into her creative process, what inspires her, how she takes care of herself, when she works, when she doesn't, why, how she has been so good at so many different types of writing, including erotic writing, which as someone who is a columnist for the New York Times, is the editor of uh, many of these anthologies that I shared about, that was a curveball for me. I did not know about that. And we also understand if we sort of unpack her career arc, how important and influential that writing was to her ultimate success. Um, of course, we talk about racism in America. We talk about media literacy. We talk about activism, burnout, self-care. I think you're getting the picture. This is a very comprehensive um, conversation across a broad range of topics. Um, these are questions as a longtime fan that I've had for um, for Roxanne and the timing on this couldn't be better. She is literally on uh, zoom calls with all the major networks talking about, um, what's happening in the world right now, virtually nonstop. And as I said at the, in the intro line to this introduction, we planned this some time ago and it couldn't have come at a better time. Such an impressive guest. 
Uh, I'm going to get out of the way so you can hear our conversation. Before you do, just a super quick word from Creative Live, and then we'll get back to it with Roxanne Gay. Hey, y'all. Hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close. And it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So, of course, I'm biased, but I I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close. And you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts. Okay, that's it. That's my soapbox. That is the commercial, and we'll hope to see you over Creative Live. Now, let's get back to the show. Please welcome Roxanne Gay. Hello. Hi, Roxanne. That is a, such an impressive biography uh, across, I don't know, all kinds of different media and outlets, and that is one of the reasons that I'm excited to have you on the show uh, of the many Um and I just wanted to say welcome to our creative community here. Um, where are you coming from today? Today I am in my house in Los Angeles, California. Nice. Same time zone. I wasn't sure. When we, it's a little bit later in the afternoon than we normally record, so I thought you might um, be making it late in New York. But um, I want to get straight into uh, our program. And as I mentioned in our little pre-show uh, pre conversation, so many of the people watching today identify as either creators or entrepreneurs. Uh, and one of the things that I have learned from devouring everything I can in your work um, is in part your effectiveness in so many different categories of art. Uh, but I want to go back for the people who are new to your work, or I'm also curious to hear you in your own words. I haven't ha heard this before. A description of your very, very early career where you um, first, say, got your break in um, as, as a writer. Wait, what was the question? What was your first break? Take us back to the beginning where you where you sort of start began identifying as a creator, and how did you turn that um, that passion, the uh, desire to write, to be heard, seen, um, into a career? Can you talk to talk to us about your early early career? Well, I've always taken myself seriously as a writer, even when I was ridiculously young and just you know writing nonsense. Uh, and I think that because I always took myself seriously as a writer, that allowed me to persist, especially during the early years when no one was interested in publishing my work. Um, the very first essay I ever had published was an essay in a magazine called um, Moxie Magazine, and it's, of course, long defunct. And then I published an essay in an anthology called Does Your Mama Know About the Black Lesbian Experience? And then for a few years, there was nothing more that happened. I had those two the sort of brief moments of success, and then it all went away. <clears throat> and I write both fiction and nonfiction. And so I certainly kept submitting my work throughout my 20s and 
my work kept getting rejected. So I started writing erotica because I just thought, well, if these magazines are going to keep telling me my stories have too much sex, then I will just publish them in, you know, in publications that are only interested in uh, sex with maybe some narrative around it. And so I have an entire career that nobody really knows about um, in the erotica world. And then I started to submit those very same stories again into mainstream publications, not the stories that were published, but stories in that same genre. And finally, people were starting to pay attention. And uh, so then I had another sort of break in 2009 or 2010. I published an essay in uh, The Rumpus called um, The Careless Language of Sexual Violence. And it was written in response to an article in the New York Times about a young girl who was gang raped in Cleveland, Texas. And the New York Times reported the story uh, with a focus on the poor town and how the town was suffering. And I just was furious because who cares? The girl was like 11 years old. Uh, let's worry about this child. And so I wrote this essay and then the Times actually went and re-reported the story the proper way. And uh, I've been writing nonfiction ever since and I've always written fiction. And it was just persistence and keep just continuing to try and put my work into the public sphere with mixed degrees of success. <laughs> What's that? What was the timeline from first publication to figuring out that it wasn't going to be sustainable, then going, um, I guess, not having a lot of breaks and then coming back out in the, um, in the erotica space? What was that time arc? Um, I would say five years and then five years from erotica to the rumpus. So it was about 10, 10 years altogether. I've, and then now I've been writing for, well, publishing for about 20 years, 20, 25 years, maybe. It seems like such a, a theme for the creators that we've had on the show. There's this, the 10, you know, classic 10 years, what do you, 10 year overnight success. Mm -hmm. um, you you said something that I, um, I have also heard, which I wanted to get a little bit deeper on, and that is this initial success, and then nothing. Yeah. And talk to me about that. That is something that I experienced, and and some of the people that I'm close to had, that we've had on the show, but I really haven't ever sort of excavated that. And I'm wondering, is that a is that a thing? Is that a thing that most creators go through? <clears throat> And then do they not, they get a break and then is it because they didn't capitalize on their break? They didn't do the right thing when they got the break that they did. They didn't parlay it. Like why the quiet after the initial sort of publishing? I don't know. I think it depends. And I think it differs from one writer to the next. Uh, I know for me, I did not stop submitting my work. I was relentless. And I, I think I still am. But some writers do have that initial success and then the next rejection makes them think, oh, I should give up. This is not the world for me. And I think that's why you see a lot of lulls after an initial success because success feels really good and you start to assume that you're always going to meet with success. And some people have the temerity to persevere and some don't. And was it your, you also said that you were very serious. Was it that seriousness, that commitment to the craft? Was it a commitment to making a living? Were you out to prove someone wrong or yourself right? Like, where did your energy um, and drive come from? Well, the seriousness was just, I loved writing. I loved it. I, I'd never 
thought I would make a living as a writer because I, I just never thought that was a possibility, uh, partly because I was raised by Haitian parents who believed in getting a real job as a lawyer, doctor, or engineer, uh, the Haitian trifecta. And um, so I just knew that I was always going to write, but that I would also always have like a quote unquote real job. Um, and so when I took myself seriously, it's just that I genuinely enjoy writing. I, I'm not a tortured writer by any stretch of the imagination. I love it. It makes me feel good. Uh, I find it relaxing. I find it challenging. I find it fun. Uh, and so I allowed myself that creative outlet. And throughout my 20s and 30s, uh, and especially in my 30s, when I started to have more success in getting essays and short stories accepted in publications, uh, I just wanted more of that. And I was making absolutely no money. I was not paid for probably the first 15 years of my career. Uh, and so uh, it was just ambition that pushed me forward. And it's ambition that continues to push me forward. And where and geographically were you when you first started to break into the world? Had you moved to New York and got the uh, the apartment, the the classic story, or was it something different? Uh, I was living in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, where I've I lived in Nebraska for I've lived in Nebraska for most of my life, and so. I was living in Lincoln, and then I was living in Michigan's Upper Peninsula for graduate school. I was getting my PhD, and then I was in rural Illinois, and then I was in rural Indiana. <laughs> uh, and I while I was it was while I was at Purdue that I started to come to Los Angeles, and then I just decided, fuck it, I'm going to live in LA, and I'm going to fly back to Indiana for work every Monday, and I sure did. Wow. Well, I think there's so many people, um, and I'm, I'm seeing guests from all over the world come in. We're, we've got South Africa, New York, LA, some fellow LA people waving, Las Vegas, Florida, uh, London. My goodness, it's midnight, London. What are you doing? Um, anyway, the whole the whole world that I, I, that is tuned in right now, I think that they find something refreshing. There's some clapping about your. Um, not being based in New York, where I think a lot of the universe thinks of that being the literary capital, certainly of the U.S. Was that a challenge to no. write, you know, in that time? Not at all. Uh, there's this real misperception that you have to live in New York to be a writer, and you don't. You have to have a computer or a pencil and a piece of a pe piece of paper. It's, it's just not complicated. People want to put obstacles between them and publication because people think it's hard to get published. And it's, it's not, it's hard to get published in the Paris review, but it's not hard to get published. Uh, and so I just knew that with a little bit of research, I was going to be able to find places to send my work. And back then you had to put your work in an envelope and take it to the post office and mail it and wait six months to get a response uh, that was generally a rejection on a little tiny slip of paper. Uh, and you had to send them the self-addressed return envelope or you would not hear from them. And so yeah. these young writers today, I'm just like, listen, in my day, submissions <laughs> back uphill, backwards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so 
I, I strongly encourage writers who do not live in New York to disabuse themselves of the fantasy that you have to live in New York. First of all, New York is expensive. And second of all, writers don't make any money. So unless you want to be miserable in New York, just enjoy where you're at. It's going to be fine. That's quite, um, I guess, heartwarming and painful at the same time to know that you had to you used to have to pay for your own rejection letters essentially yeah. to, be, to be sent to you, right? You did. It's just like the humiliation upon humiliation. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we're, we'll bill you. Um, yeah, send us send us uh, your rejection letter. We'll bill you for it. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, heartbreaking. Um, well, thanks for taking us back to some early career. I think there's again, we've got folks from South Carolina, from India, Texas, um, Egypt just chimed in, wanting to know about your creative process. In particular, um, Daryl from Facebook wants to know about your research. Is it more conceptual in nature? Is it more of an internal journey? Maybe in order to answer Daryl's question and a handful of others, you can just walk us through what your creative process from ideation to execution. You know, I don't have a formal creative process, which is always upsetting for people to hear, but I just sit down and I write. Uh, and I go where the writing takes me. That said, I'm one of those writers who spends a lot of time thinking about what I want to say. So I do 90% of my composition in my head. And I just have, for whatever reason, the ability to retain what I'm thinking about and to sort of retain the drafts that I create in my head. Um, so I will spend quite a lot of time thinking. I, I'd like to say that I'm a slow thinker and a fast writer. And so once I feel like I've gotten a piece to where I want in my mind, then I sit down and I write it out and I generally, it takes only a matter of hours and then I'm good to go and I send it off. Um, I, I, I'm, before I send it off, I read it out loud because Ooh. I find that's a really great way to hear a story. Are the sentences working? Um, are my ideas coherent? Uh, is it pleasant to hear? in terms of just the sound of the sentences. I find that it's a really great way to find logical mistakes and structural mistakes and things that could be improved. And so I do that and then I will make revisions based on sort of how a piece sounds. And then I do send it off to a publication and hope for the best. In terms of research, uh, now that I have the time to write more slowly, I absolutely do research. Um, and I generally do way more research than ever makes it on the page. What the research really does is inform my thinking and inform how I present my thinking. And so I like to read quite a lot around a given subject that I'm writing about so that I can feel more authoritative, more ugh, words, so I can feel more authoritative when I'm writing. And, um, I like to write from a place of confidence when I, I'm trying to tackle some of the more complicated subjects of this world. And so I do that. And these days I have a research assistant. Her name is Melissa and she's great. I've, she's been with me now for five years. And so in general, I tell her, I want to write an essay about HGTV. Could you please do a deep dive on why the channel began 
why they are so focused on real estate and home acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. So I give her a series of research questions and then she goes and she's a PhD student in geography. And so she's very curious and she sends me way more than I ever, ever need. But in that, I always find something interesting that takes my piece in an unexpected way and moves it. And I love that. I, that's what I love about research. It's that I think I know what I want to say. And I think I know what I know. And then I do all this research and realize, ah, no, I don't quite know everything I need to know. Um, and so it's a nice moment of humility. And then I learn something more. But you, you having read a lot of your writing, you've seemed to weave so much of your personal experience in. And how do you how do you mesh those things, this external research, the revelation of new ideas throughout the process, contributions from your research assistant, and yet your own fabric? What's the, what's, how do you sew that together? You know, it, it's, I generally work with by instinct. I think about what do I think the piece needs in terms of research and in terms of external thinking and what does the piece need in terms of personal experience. And I try to just maintain that balance because I never want to include personal information in ways that are gratuitous. If I've included personal information, there is always a really clear reason why I've done that. Uh, um, people will often say to me, oh my gosh, you're so open and I feel like I know you. And the reality is that you know what I have allowed you to know. And I have very firm boundaries over what I will not put into the world about my personal life. And I stick to those boundaries, especially the older I get. Uh, and that's really, really useful uh, because so many young writers and especially women writers, queer writers, writers of color, um, writers in the disability community are expected to cannibalize themselves and then they're expected to be experts on themselves, but nothing else. And so I try to work against that as often as I can. And fortunately, I'm at a place in my career where I can. Was that a learned through experience or how, what part of you was able to identify what sounds like early on you and, and draw those boundaries? Um, I think I've, I just, Part, partly experience, but partly just instinct. And uh, I have parents who are still alive. And so they, and we're close. And so I think part of it was always, let me not put anything into the world that would embarrass my parents and make them unable to go to their church. <laughs> so that's a really in, great guideline. <laughs> yeah, in, in Nebraska, no less. Mm-hmm. Well, now they don't live in Nebraska anymore, in Florida, but still. Um, it's a really useful metric for me because I'm Haitian and Haitian families are very close. And also like parents are good parents. And so I don't have any sort of deep emotional thing with them that I need to relieve myself of at the expense of our relationship. And so it really just, that was early on, that was a great guideline. And now I'm 45. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do, but I have a stronger sense of judgment and a stronger sense of, what a piece needs versus what might be self-indulgent. Mm. Um, I want to go back to your comment about your parents, because uh, you said something else earlier, which I also believe is um, something that our audience would would benefit from hearing about it. And that is 
this pressure from our parents and loved ones, whether these are our parents or career counselors or peers or grandparents or whoever it is, these are people that have a strong influence in our lives. And and I think the way you said it is that the Haitian trifecta, they wanted to be doctor, lawyer, or what was the third one? Engineer. Engineer. And how did you, you clearly didn't, uh, I mean, doctor, PhD, was that the way you checked the box? <laughs> how, did you, how did you manage that? Uh, you know, I originally, when I was in college, I majored in pre-med and then I moved to architecture and then I gave up the ghost and graduated as a liberal arts major. And then I got my master's degree in creative writing because I just knew that my parents had these dreams for me, but I had to live my life and I loved writing. And even though I didn't think I was going to make a living as a writing, as a writer, I certainly thought I could at least get a graduate degree. And then I got my PhD in rhetoric and technical communication. I was actually going to go work at Boeing uh, instead of teach. And the money was very good. But at the end of the day, I just could not bring myself to work for a defense contractor. So I went into academia. Um, and it was my parents were happy at that point because I was happy. I was doing something creative. But I also had what they considered to be a real job. And so it was a compromise of sorts. And uh, I, I never regretted going to graduate school. I think everyone, if you have the opportunity to not pay for it, should go to graduate school. The opportunity to not pay for it. Mm -hmm. I was one of the people who uh, went and paid for it and paid dearly because not dissimilar to you is a lot of um, social coaching and, and uh my parents thought I ought to, and yet I think I actually, uh, I said this a lot about myself, but gosh, I want to, I want to, um, fit in. And it doesn't occur to me outside of what you just shared with your parents on all the stuff that I've, I've read that fitting in and acceptance is not something that I've heard you talk a lot about specifically. I'm trying to juxtapose what you just shared with wanting to please your parents and, and yet knowing that you were going to be a writer. Mm -hmm. So can you help reconcile those things for us? Um, you know, I certainly spent quite a lot of my life trying to conform myself to please others. And I did so to my own detriment. And I think a lot of people do, but especially a lot of Haitian daughters. And it was I don't know how I managed to, I always tried to find a way to both appease my family and be able to live with myself. And I'm a Libra. So I find, I just found a way to make it work. And now that I'm much older and also established now I, and I'm in therapy, thank God. I just, make a concerted effort to recognize that I don't have to live for my parents. I don't have to live for my friends. I don't have to live for my partner. Uh, I have to do what I want to do. And so I do. Do you, there's a lot of folks that I come in contact with in our community for whom this is a huge um, hurdle. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you have advice. You talked about, you know, pleasing others to your own detriment and 
you talked about being older, wiser. Do you have any advice that you could pass along? Because I think that is a that is a hot topic for our community. It is. You know, the best advice I can give is it's easier said than done, but you have to recognize as early as you can in your life that you're actually never going to make anyone happy, even if you think you are. Um, whatever expectations they have of you are not actually about you. They're about them. And so they have their own emotional work to do. And if you achieve some arbitrary milestone that they want you to achieve, they're going to move the goalposts. And so it's important to just do what you want for yourself. Um, I mean, within reason, we live in a world, we live in a community. And uh, so this idea that you can just do what you want without considering others is not what I'm saying. But I do think that you should pursue the things that make you happy and make you fulfilled. And I wish more creative people in particular would do that. We have such a damaging narrative in our culture that you can't create and succeed. And it's always people who have already created and succeeded who offer that nonsense as if they're trying to close the gate behind them. Uh, you absolutely can make a go of a creative life. You may need to have five jobs, but you can do it and you should do it if you want. And so I just encourage people to uh, push forward. Would you uh, comment on the having an extra job? I've heard you give advice that that was one of the best things for your transition and it's also a thing that's, I think, f usually swept under the carpet for most most creators, especially the ones that have been so successful as you have in so many different disciplines. Um, and yet you had a, quote, day job. I did. Uh, until this year, I had a day job. And having a day job allowed me to take risks. It allowed me to do what I want, how I want, because I wasn't going to have to pay my rent based on how much I got paid for writing. And so when you don't have to compromise creatively, you create better work. And a day job makes that possible. Uh, it, and it, I wish more writers and creative people would just suck it up and have a goddamn day job. Like, it's easier to create when the rent is paid, at least for me. If you want to sort of live that bohemian lifestyle and suffer, that's totally fine. But I'm way too old for that. Uh, and so I just, I am a big advocate of a day job. You have a day job until you no longer need one. And if you are lucky enough to be able to quit your day job, then by all means, quit your day job uh, and make sure you have health insurance. Well, <laughs> there, there you have it for anyone who's, <laughs> we had that question like, boom, right on. And um, again, more folks um, commending you and your work Roxanne, from Bulgaria, Brazil, Newfoundland, Melbourne, and Wyoming. Got to oh. throw the Wyoming in there. <laughs> um, I would like to um, explore how on earth you've been so successful in so many different genres, with writing as the core, but from you know essays and short stories to um, nonfiction, novels, memoirs, comic books with Marvel, um, opinion columns, How, where did you get the range? Was that always something you envisioned for yourself? And most folks are taught to focus, 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 and stand out in your chosen field such that you maybe then can expand. Mm -hmm. So 
share share what your thought process was or or your actual um in the flesh process was to be good at so many different things is that genetic is it gift is it genius is it work what's the secret because most people are terrified of being pigeonholed and yet develop like developing and and committing to an area of creativity is one of the best known ways to stand out yeah i mean i would say it's a little bit all of the above you know it seems like i do a lot of different things but i actually don't i do one thing i write uh storytelling is storytelling i just work in a lot of different genres and i work in a lot of different genres because very early in my writing career in my early 20s i submitted a story to a journal can't even remember the name of the journal at this point and it was a story about a black lesbian couple uh in the suburbs and their little family and the editor wrote back and he said this was an amazing story but it just wasn't believable because it wasn't in the ghetto and this was probably 20 years ago so it wasn't like today but also what he, you know it was weird that he was like the ghetto <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> first of all we're in Lincoln Nebraska uh, like what are you talking about seriously do you even know what you're saying and it was so racist and so breathtaking uh, that I just knew then and there that I was never going to let um, an editor pigeonhole me, even if it meant I wasn't going to get published. And so I pulled the story because he refused to publish it unless I changed the setting. And I was like, I'm from West Omaha. Like, like you, I just don't even know what you want me to do here. Uh, and I'm from the suburbs. And it just, he didn't believe me. And I just refused. And... So I was very versatile from that moment on. And I just knew, okay, you don't want me to write this kind of story. I'm going to write every kind of story. And to this day, I just, anytime someone gives me an opportunity in a new genre, I jump at the chance because at, a at the foundation, it's just telling a story of some kind, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's comics or film. And I just love storytelling. I love developing characters and thinking about structure and all of the craft elements that go into telling a given story. Um, and I also love how much it confounds people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, I think it, it underscores this idea of mastery and you talked about the focuses on writing and then, you know, you can be genre agnostic. Think mm -hmm. about even your earlier com comments about erotica. Did that help you understand that you could be mobile between all these different genre, that early experience writing in something maybe where you didn't see yourself given that you took yourself seriously as a writer, but then that was your first outlet. Was that, did that play a role? And in... uh, definitely, I, I think I discovered that, I didn't have to be wedded to a specific genre. I could be flexible and it would be okay. I would get the creative satisfaction regardless. And so even though I took myself seriously and no one else was, it was fine because I still found a way to do what I wanted to do. Uh, I heard you call the comment that that editor said obviously is extremely racist oh. and we're in the middle of a pandemic, but we're also in the middle of a global crisis, a crisis of racism. And um, as an ally and as someone who's trying to learn from not just the murder of George Floyd, but all of the actions that are happening right now, um, you've been so eloquent on so many different 
channels and by channels, I don't mean tele, just television channels. I mean in your podcast and which we, I want to get to in a second here to slay. Um, I heard you, I, I'd like to, to, um, get your perspective on a handful of things right now because you're so eloquent. I heard you paraphrase that in talking about racism, your goal isn't to minister the racist, but that you aim to affect the apathetic and those who don't participate. And I'm wondering, was that a learned experience? And if so, why and how? And um, do you feel like that's been effective? Well, I've spent most of my adult life and certainly most of my professional life living in really horrible rural places. They're not horrible because they're rural. They're horrible because they're full of racist people. And so I know that they can't be reached. Nothing is going to change their minds. And even if something will change their minds, I don't have the level of grace or patience to do it. I'm not going to go top to racist Joe over there and try and reach him to prove that I'm fucking human. It's not gonna happen. Uh, my time and my intelligence uh, is more valuable than that. And so the people I'm trying to reach are the people who are like, eh, I don't care about politics and uh, I don't vote, or I'm staying home because Bernie is not the democratic nominee. People who are apathetic or agnostic politically I think they can be reached because there's always a reason. Something happened to make them not want to participate in their, the civic world. And so I'm interested in that. And I'm interested in finding ways to reinvigorate those voters. So how do we get someone who's disappointed that Bernie Sanders is not the Democratic nominee to engage in the Democratic process right now? And I, of course, don't have any easy answers. But I'm, I'm at least willing to have that conversation. But I have no interest in talking to Trump voters. If you voted for Trump, you're racist. And uh, I don't really want to hear any of the mental gymnastics that you do to convince yourself otherwise. Um, they're racist and they're proud about it. And that's fine. Like, like do you. Like, it's a free country. But uh, I don't have to give you my mental energy. So I don't. I thank you for that. Um... I watched um, the movie 13th three times and I found that it was very helpful for understanding and mostly giving me a way to help to explain it to others who may be in that apathetic category. Um, in, in your work and in your commentary on the Black Lives Matter movement and the corrupt policing you you said something i believe it was a paraphrase of someone else and you just spoke so powerfully about it and i'm wondering if we can um call on that right now and that is you can't expect a corrupt system to reform itself mm -hmm. can you talk to us about that for a second because i think that's part of the 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 the, the um confrontation that's happening right now, this idea of defunding the police. And so people, people get scared. They don't understand what that means. Yeah. And yet it's the equivalent of asking a corrupt system to just go in and put the, put the band-aids in the right places and sweep the floor. And it just seems so superficial. I was, I want to get your commentary on it. 
Yeah, you know, a lot of times when we're talking about police brutality and police corruption, people love to say it's a few bad apples, but it's not a few bad apples. And when you look at the murder of George Floyd, what was equally striking to the fact that Derek Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck, despite his begging for his life for almost nine minutes, three other police officers stood there and watched and did nothing. And that... And they did nothing while people around them were begging them to stop this. And so that's a system that cannot be rehabilitated. In Buffalo, New York, a police officer shoved a 75-year-old man who fell, started bleeding, and the rest of the unit just continued to walk by and left this old man to bleed. He went, And then his injuries were severe enough that he had to go to the hospital and spend the night uh, and then when the police officers were suspended with pay, the 57 members of that riot unit quit rather than have to face that their colleague face consequences for something that is categorically terrible. No matter what your political affiliation is, like you look at that and you just think that's fucked up. And so, again, the system is corrupt. These people have bought into the rhetoric of Blue Lives Matter. And so we have to start over. Uh, and people here defund the police and they hear prison and police abolition and they think that law enforcement disappears. No, but we have to rethink what law enforcement looks like. We have to demilitarize law enforcement. And so I think it's time to get radical. And I'll tell you what, before George Floyd's murder, I was very skeptical of prison and police abolition because I just thought, how? And I recognize now that it was a failure of my imagination. And all of us who just get flummoxed by the idea of abolition, um, people also didn't understand slavery abolition. And that was also a failure of imagination. And so I am doing right now, this is not my area of expertise, so I'm actually reading as much as I can and just trying to educate myself on what this might look like and how we can safely go about it. But I think we can do it. I think that the police cause more harm and than the good they do. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be afraid every time I get in a car and leave my house that I'm going to get pulled over, I'm not, which is fine, but then die because a cop thinks that I'm going to do something, which I'm not. You know, it's just, I shouldn't have to live like that. I shouldn't have to worry about my brothers. I shouldn't have to worry about my dad. And so we have to start over, and I hope that we can. Mm. Thank you. Um, as a eternal optimist, something and having um, seen protests and um, you know there are markers o across the last thirty years, something feels different to me. I don't know what it is not being black or a person of color as as an ally. What is different about this? It feels different from the outside. I don't know if it feels different from where you are. I'm curious what what your perception is of the current moment. Is it is it different? And if so, why? I don't know yet. 
I think it's too soon to tell. I want to believe that it's different, but I also wanted to believe it was going to be different after um, the Charleston Nine were murdered. And I wanted to believe it was going to be different after um, Trayvon Martin and Michael, uh, Michael Brown and Tamir Rice, nine years old, um, or 12 years old, I mean, regardless, he was a child. So each time these, this happens, I think, okay, this is going to be the tipping point. But when Tamir Rice wasn't the tipping point, when a child who was playing with a toy gun, minding his own little business in a park, was murdered by a cop, first of all, cops are cowards because they are forever shooting unarmed black people out of fear. Um, but if that wasn't the tipping point, nothing will be in the same way that Sandy Hook wasn't the tipping point on rethinking gun legislation. <laughs> like when upper middle class white children are murdered, like children, children, six and seven year olds, then no, we're never going to change in this country. So I don't know. I, I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. And I don't know. But I do see this time what's different. Corporations are at least paying lip service to the idea that Black Lives Matter. Uh, people who have been racist are facing material consequences for their behavior. It's like the Me Too movement, but with consequences. And um, I, white people are getting on board. Like white people are like, this one was so horrific that even white people are like, oh man, that, that one was actually pretty bad. So I do think if there ever was an opportunity to capitalize on the sacrifice of a black person, it would be this moment. And so I really, really hope that we are on the precipice of real change because as a writer who engages with social justice and who writes about the world that we live in and looks at race and gender and things like that, I'm just tired of writing about black people who have been murdered in deeply unjust ways. And so I do hope that this is that moment. We'll see. Mm. Thank you. Um, my optimist is coming back here to ask another question. <laughs> let's say let's say we make a change in policing. We, as you invoked your imagination, we have, we invoke that imagination as a culture, as a society, we have we run some experiments. Some of these early cities that are ahead of the curve on on divesting and reinvesting, um, divesting and reinvesting in a community that is beyond just the militarization of the police. Mm -hmm. Let's say we achieve some of these things. Let's say from the current standard to something that's more decentralized or community service driven. What is the next area of the public focus for anti-racism? Where ought we focus if we can see progress with the policing? Well, I mean, it has to be more than just policing. We also have to look at the court system, which disproportionately punishes black people. Mm -hmm. um, we have to release every single person who is arrested for marijuana crimes immediately. I think we have to overhaul the prison system. Until we deal with those things, nothing else is going to matter. And it has to be done immediately. This is not something that has to be rolled out slowly. I think that private prisons must be abolished. They are corrupt and they are predicated on locking up black people so that they can make more money. 
And so those are like immediate things that can be done and they can be done realistically. Um, because yeah, we can get rid of private prisons. That's an easy, well, it's nothing is easy, but that's also an easy thing to do. Uh, and then we have to look at the education system and we have to look at the fact that black children are disproportionately, um, disciplined in the classrooms. Uh, we have to get rid of charter schools. We have to separate tax base um, in uh, land. We have to separate real estate tax from the school system. Schools, yeah. So that funds are more evenly distributed. So like people in Beverly Hills basically receive a private education in their public schools because of that tax base, while people in Crenshaw uh, have a much lower tax base and therefore their public schools are doing less with more. I mean, doing they're having to do more with less. And so we have to just equalize the public school system. I think some of these things will begin to get at systemic problems. And it's just going to require a lot of imagination from elected officials and also from ourselves. I think a lot of us are going to have to be made uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable by some of these ideas, but that's because I was raised in a racist world. Uh, and I have to sort of decolonize my thinking, and we all do. Speaking of uh, decolonize the thinking and um, maybe in a where do we go from here, um, media literacy is a huge um, is a huge topic. And I think whether you look at the last election, what you know the platforms that we're communicating on right now, the availability that that's something that both gives everyone a voice and then is something you, you can pay to play to be everywhere what what advice would you give around media literacy if that's a huge piece of the problem that we face as a culture and as an audience of creators and entrepreneurs who um i think can stand to you know certainly be harmed by the media but also maybe help shape it what, yeah, what media, advice would you give for media literacy? You know, I think media literacy is one of the most important skills we can teach anyone. And I think that media literacy begins in preschool in age appropriate ways where we teach children about the messages that they consume and adults also. But we can start with kids uh, because we have to understand the motivations behind a commercial for. So, for example, right now, media literacy is at an all time important level because a lot of corporations are putting out nonsense commercials, praising themselves and telling us that we're in this together. Uh, sorry, Chase Bank. No, we're not in this together because you want my mortgage payment. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're definitely not in this together. Um, Disclosure, it, my, my name has no connection to the Chase Bank. <laughs> just <laughs> You know, it's just really frustrating. Uh, Amazon, who refuses to pay their workers a living wage, refuses to give them personal protection equipment, is, is having all these commercials about how well they're taking care of their employees. It's just like media literacy lets us know that they're full of shit. And I, I really think it's important that we understand that so that we don't get taken in. Um, and we don't make assumptions about corporate entities doing good. They're not doing good. They're only concerned with protecting their bottom line. Um, and so these things matter. We have to understand the messages that we receive through film and television, even and even through books. 
And so I just encourage everyone to become media literate, especially because we have a president who calls everything that he disagrees with fake news. Uh, he calls facts fake news. He doesn't believe in science. And so when there's no coherent federal leadership uh, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, media literacy goes a really long way to making sure that we understand that it's actually not safe to go outside without protection. And so perhaps you should do something about that. Uh, I keep seeing people just like flagrantly walking around without masks. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you guys, what are you doing? Uh, it's it's a lot. And I live in a really liberal place. So, ugh. yeah, hence the question like about media literacy is it's such a, a huge area of both fear and opportunity. I think the the fact that the media that we are experiencing right now is something that no one has training for. No, it, it, yeah. it basically appeared on us in what felt like, you know, in generational terms overnight. Um, and, and I, there, there's so much opportunity there for educating. Um, and it's not just the young people, right? <laughs> and, you know, I, as creators, I think that we have a responsibility to make sure that we're creating ethical art and, it doesn't mean like you have to be a saint, like be an asshole, talk about terrible things, whatever. But when you're creating messages for the public, at least make sure that they're honest and that they're grounded in fact and that they understand that the world is round. Uh, you know, these things matter. And we have that responsibility, I believe. Speaking of responsibility um, and honesty, I've heard you described as radically honest. <laughs> is that something you would, would, would you own that? Or is that a moniker that somebody stuck on you? Uh, I, I'm not radically honest. I'm honest, but I think people consider it radical because I say, I tell truths that they are uncomfortable with. Like I, people always call things that are, they're uncomfortable with radical, like, um, $15 an hour minimum wage. Oh, that's radical. That's because you don't want to pay someone $15 an hour. Uh, it's not radical. It really isn't. And so I, I do think people call me that. I understand where it comes from, but I think it's just that I'm willing to talk about things that make people uncomfortable. Um, in your um, TED talk, mm -hmm. you you said a lot of truth. You spoke a lot of honesty uh, about feminism. I was deeply inspired and the way that it's just such an eloquent crafting of the message using yourself as, um, as, uh, a lens through which you could look at being good or bad at feminism. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, um, either through the lens of feminism or anything, your ability to put yourself in harm's way in your own story. And it's just, it's genius. And I, I, I'm trying to find out, you've done it in so many of the works that I've read. And that's the part where I, I asked early on, like, how do you craft your own narrative? Are you, is it starting from in here or is it starting from out there? It, and maybe this is back to a creative process question, but, um, where does the, your ability or your, that piece of art that you put yourself again in, in the, is, is in the, the bad seat for long enough? Is it just an, is it a, a device? It's, you're so articulate with it. And I, it's so well done in your Ted talk. Can you talk to us about it? Um, I mean, it's a rhetorical strategy. Um, people always think, oh, you're so raw, which they always say about black writers. It's really aggravating. It's like, no, it's not raw. 
I have a PhD in communication. I made you feel that way. <laughs> and so it's a choice. It is, it, it's definitely a rhetorical choice um, to get the reaction I want out of the reader. Um, so I, I, am, I always think about craft and what craft choices I can make to bring about a certain response in my readers. And it's not about manipulation. It really is about persuasion. And how do I get my readers to consider my point of view? And sometimes it requires not sacrifice, but a willingness to open myself up. Uh, and I do it despite being afraid to do it. I just do it anyway. It's not bravery. It's not special. I just do it and I'm terrified at the same time. And so far it has worked. Uh, and, you know, it gets harder and harder to do because it's easy to do when no one's reading your work. <laughs> and I, so the way I got to do it was I always told myself, it doesn't matter what you put in this book. Literally no one's going to read it. You write about feminism and black people, like no one's going to care. Um, and it's getting harder to maintain that delusion as I become more successful. And so it's also getting harder to um, be vulnerable on the page. But I try to do it when a, a, a piece necessitates it. How? I just tell myself this is what the piece needs and no one's going to read it. I literally still tell myself no one's going to read it. It's, no one's going to read your New York Times bestseller. No, not at all. Ah, oh, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Who? Who? Uh, um, so let's, let's get on to self-care. I watch your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed, and I see you baking these croissants. <laughs> <laughs> and your cooking photos and videos are amazing. Um I think I, I just one uh, fan from across the country. Y you should do a cookbook. It would be incredible. Um, but what do you do for self-care, for burnout, for other creative outlets that are not your day job? Is that something that you feel like you need? You talked earlier about writing being joyful and relaxing. And it seems like you have so many creative um hobbies are engaged in all this other stuff outside of writing. And I'm curious if you could um, help us understand, is that intentional? Is that just, you know, part of your personality? What about this? Is it, is it managing self-care and burnout or what is it? Um, I, I don't really think in terms of self-care cause I'm old, but uh, I do think it's important and I, I'm not very good at it and I need to get better at it because I'm burnt out, but I also have a lot of obligations. So, you know, those obligations don't care about burnout. Like my parents' mortgage does not care. So I have to suck it up and like do what needs to be done. Um, I have a lot of hobbies because I'm a Libra and I just, I'm always interested in a lot of different things and I'm not super woo astro astrology, but I do believe in my sign and I am very, very Libra. I have like five of six areas or houses in Libra. And so I'm like a Libra Libra and deep, deep Libra. <laughs> and baking is relaxing. I love baking. It's, 
precise, but it's also creative and um, it's challenging at times. Like I'm trying to master croissant, which are very, very hard to make. And I have not yet mastered them, but I will. Uh, and it's just, I enjoy the process of doing it. And it's okay if I fuck it up. It's like, there's nothing at stake. It's just me and my partner will eat it anyway. She doesn't care. Um, and she'll, she'll I've seen pictures of, I've seen pictures from Debbie of your chocolate chip cookies. I think those yeah. may have, you may have achieved perfection. I have. I have <laughs> mastered the chocolate chip cookie because um, she likes them thin and crispy. So I have like secret is milk. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Something we have not heard. <laughs> yes. Um, so I do that, and I, I would love to do a cookbook. I would love to do a cookbook. Maybe someday someone will ask me to. We'll see. I, I'm guessing there's some editors, some acquiring editors listening or watching or will. So we'll get you a cookbook deal. <laughs> Putting it out there in the world. I can, I, oh, I mean, the recipe choices, the... The little blurb that's going to go with every recipe, the photos. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be yep. good. It's going to be lots and lots of fun carbohydrate-based things. <laughs> um, other folks that are um, struggling right now with their art, where do you turn for your next piece, for your next vision, your next quest? You You talked about being... Uh, intuitive. And I'm personally fascinated with intuition. I rely on it a lot. I don't know where the trust in oneself comes from. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk to us about your intuition, because it seems to be so core to your success, yet it's, it's like fleeting for so many. Um, well, you know, I certainly deal with creative blocks all the time. I used to not, but now I do because I think I have so much, I've, I've overcommitted to so many projects. And so sometimes I'm just like, I don't even know where to start, but I read a lot. Um, I, I go to theater. I do a lot. Of, I go to museums. I, I engage with art a lot in a lot of different forms. And that actually helps me find new ideas and fresh ways of thinking and fresh ways of seeing the world. Uh, and I, I wish more creative people understood that you have to read as much as you write to be a good writer. I mean, you may not do that. And it, whatever works for you works for you. But I, I'm, the best writers are also avid readers, in my opinion. And so for me, it's just I, I just surround myself with creativity as often as I can. And I also watch a lot of trash television, a lot. And it's great. And it's okay to just like let go. And like when I just hit a wall, sometimes I hit a wall and I just recognize nothing more is going to happen in this essay tonight. So I'm going to go watch Vanderpump Rules. And that helps. <laughs> Speaking of consuming a lot of art, the, there's a huge stack of books behind you that a number of people have commented on. Yeah. Um, and um, to that end, Aaron on Facebook wants to know, is there something inspirational that's in your head right now, either that you're reading or that you're crafting? I am actually writing an essay for the New York Times. Uh, the piece I wrote last week was called No One's Coming to Save Us. Remember, no one's coming to save us. And so uh, this week's piece is called uh, How We Save Ourselves. 
And so I've been looking at everything that's going on and I've just been thinking about maybe this is different. And so here's what we can do in this moment. We have to, and it's just a piece about how we have to sustain this moment and how you can't just be like reaching out to black people today. You have to, you know, like right now, a lot of people online are like, read books by black women. And I'm like, you should be doing that every day. That's like not something you should only do during black history month or when you're feeling guilty about racism, you should read it because we're excellent writers. And so, um, and that's the kind of piece that I'm working on right now. And it's um, it's actually inspiring me because, uh, you know, I don't think that Black people need to come up with solutions to end our own oppression because we didn't create it. But uh, it's um, nice to think about sort of looking ahead instead of looking in the ground. All right. The last thing I want to cover, it's in, on the lawn, the lines, the arc of your career and all of the different media and how you've been successful in so many things um, with Here to Slay, with your podcast. Season one just ended. Tell me there's more. There is. Season two starts on June 30th. So um, we're in pre-production right now. We've actually done a couple recordings. Uh, we are actually, Tressie and I are thinking about putting out an episode before June 30th, simply because so Gap. much is happening that we just don't think we can wait that long. Our producers, for some reason, are dragging their heels. Um, so we're trying to figure that out right now, the logistics of getting an episode out now. Um, but it's been interesting. You know, I think a lot of people think anyone can do a podcast, that you just need a microphone and a computer. And there's a steep learning curve. And our learning curve was very steep. We had to fire our first production company because racism. And um, it's been a lot, but we've learned a lot. We got a couple of awards, which was surprising. Uh, and I think we're really looking forward to seeing what we can accomplish with our second season. And um it's just sort of expanding now that we know a little bit more about the podcasting world. We have really strong producers that we learn a lot from who have been doing this for some time. And so it's nice to be doing something new and learning something new. That's just, yeah. And Debbie might be able to give you a few pointers probably. You know, <laughs> I'm only uh, married to someone who's um, very good at podcasting and has been for 15 years, but for me, 15 years. <laughs> I know, uh, it's amazing. Sometimes okay. I tell her a podcast problem and she'd give me an answer immediately. It's uh, really <laughs> I, I, and I had the good fortune of being on, on her show once, and I've watched a few of them live when I'm rolling through New York. It's such a treat. Um, well, we'll look for more uh, from you in the podcast world with Here to Slay. Um, I wanted to say thank you so much for retracing so many of your steps in your creative career, your creative process the current time we're in right now. Um, one last ask is, is there anything that you would prescribe to anyone who's listening right now? Just open-ended, the mic is yours. I think people know where to find you. You are rgay at Twitter where you're very active. Um, Roxanne Gay at, at Instagram, is that correct, I think? Uh, Roxanne Gay 74. Yeah, but, oh yeah, one N for everyone out there. Um, but just if you have the mic, and we're looking for advice from Roxanne Gay. What can you tell us? I don't know. Um, 
I think that you should make sure that you don't stop thinking about racism and its persistent and pernicious effects this week. Like you have to carry it forward. And so I think that every person watching this should map out for themselves, even write it down on a piece of paper. What are you going to do for the rest of the year and into next year to keep the momentum of this moment going? Thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing and for giving us your time. Um, we'll make sure that this gets seen far and wide. Grateful for all your work and um, thanks for the time today. Awesome. Thank you, Chase. Everybody in the world, make sure to check out Roxanne. Uh, she's probably got a few new books coming out, knowing how. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, what, what are the dates on those so we know when we can keep an eye out for the uh, releases? My book, How to Be Heard, will be out in spring 2021. And my YA novel, The Year I Learned Everything, will be out in fall 2021. And if you're like me and you can't wait that long, the podcast just starts in 20 days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, everyone. Thanks so much, Roxanne. Really appreciate you being on the show. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you. So much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple Podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here. Whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds, tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So, again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.